0: I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. Well, how is that for a back-to-school message? (laughs) Huh? Uh, A little bit of a downer, but we are in Ecclesiastes after all. Um, Maybe, uh, uh, Al, if you can bring up the house lights just a little bit so I can see people. That are out there. I mean, if I'm preaching, then I want to see who I. Yes, there you are. Well, uh, we are in September. Uh, this is that month that uh, where the days get a little bit shorter, and uh, the night air gets a little crisper. It's still sunny a lot of the time, but uh, but we know that we're making our way through the turn in the calendar, especially as we as we enter into September. It's time to begin thinking about getting back to school, right? How many of you are excited about that? Anyone? Parents? Yes? Uh, usually the parents raise their hand. The kids, not so much. <clears throat> well, two weeks ago, we drove our oldest daughter, uh, Bethany, to her freshman year uh, at uh, college outside of uh, Chicago area. And there we are uh, on the lawn right before we're ready to say goodbye. And I have to say our hearts were filled with pride uh, and our eyes were, were filled with a little bit of tears uh, But it was a great, great moment. The whole uh, experience was just amazing. And as we come back to Boston, we're getting ready to launch our kindergartners into first grade, our our first graders into first grade at uh, the esteemed uh, educational institution of Ditson Elementary School in Bill Ricca. So they are starting there, and uh, my son is heading into ninth grade, his uh, high school year, and Julie's getting back to a new teaching job. So there's a lot of education going on in our household, a lot of back to school. And there's something about uh, beginning a new semester that that fills us with a sense of anticipation and excitement. Um, there are those, uh, we, we buy folders that are fresh and new and empty, and they're just waiting to be filled, right, with... Uh, with new thoughts and new theorems and new ideas that we can reference later. There are new books that are calling us to open them up and to devour them, to dive in and to read, longing for us to underline them or highlight them or dog the pages so that we can look back and see what we need to remember. There are professors with new ideas, or at least ideas that are new to you. Uh, and uh, it's like they're pulling back a curtain to a new corner of the universe for you to explore and learn about. And of course, there's papers to be written, there's tests to be taken, quizzes, and all of that. <clears throat> but the beautiful thing is, at the start of a new semester, we all have perfect marks. 100 percent, A plus, none of us are, have made any mistakes yet. There are no failing grades. Uh, we are not falling behind on our work assignments and uh, we are all right on track. That is the great part of day one. And of course as the bumper, well day two may be different, but as far as the the bumper uh, video reminds us that uh, the Boston is a place, it's a a city that is filled with educational institutions, uh, towering institutions of academia. Harvard and MIT, uh, Northeastern, BU, BC, the UMass system, on and on it goes. You can't drive into the city of Boston without seeing some of these great uh, temples to learning. But the question we're asking today is is this. Is there a limit to what education has to offer us? Uh, Does a pursuit of increased knowledge give us the promise for a better life? And do letters... And degrees and study give our lives meaning and purpose? Or does it leave us falling short of what it is that we're really longing for? Is it enough is the question. Well, in order to explore that question, we're going to visit one more time with the teacher, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. We've uh, been in Ecclesiastes for five weeks. This is uh, week number six, and we'll wrap it up today. But the author of Ecclesiastes has sort of put on the mantle of King Solomon as he writes. And King Solomon is the most powerful, the wealthiest, uh, the most uh, wisest person in in the entire world of the known time. And he's the teacher who sets off in this desperate search for the meaning of life. Very similar to what we heard in the song that was played during the offertory. So after conducting this, as if he's conducting this grand experiment, uh, the author throws himself headlong into the things of life that people often assume will will give them a sense of purpose or meaning or joy or significance. Uh, He starts climbing up all the ladders that human beings climb up hoping to find satisfaction or some sort of meaning. Uh, He explores pleasure by throwing epic parties and wine, women, and every imaginable delight. He throws himself into the pursuit of power and control, the ability to rule kingdoms and influence the outcome of history to see if that brings any sort of meaning. He he pursues ambition, leaving a legacy by the work of his hands, creating grand public works projects and accumulating great wealth and and finding himself with a grand ability to be the CEO of all that he surveys. And so, so he throws himself up all, into all these things and he shares with us the details of his findings. It's almost, like, it's almost like the world's first reality TV show where he throws all himself into all these things and then tells us what he's found and he comes back. And we watch as he comes to the crushing realization that none of these things provides the kind of meaning and significance that he's longing for. Now, it's true that each brings a certain amount of satisfaction, but each comes up short in providing the teacher with answers to his ultimate questions that are t- troubling him. And so today, he turns his attention towards learning, knowledge, wisdom. And this morning, we discover the great teacher becoming the great student. And I think it's a perfect time for us to think about this as we're all making our way back to whatever school or new uh, Uh, Educational institution we may be a part of if we're kids or adults and who are teachers. Uh, He dives right in with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, and here's what he says I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He repeats himself in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25. He said, But I devoted myself. I devoted myself to knowledge and study. I was determined to find wisdom and the answers to all of my questions. Now, I can only imagine what it must have been like for this teacher, for King Solomon, to throw himself into an education uh, moment. Now, most of uh, your early learning in, uh, gradu- in, in uh, undergrad takes place at a university or some sort of institution, where they have gathered all the resources, and you come to them, and so you have to make your way through, you know, the the uh, the catalog to try to figure out what courses to take. You have to slog through the line at the registrar's office, or you do it online nowadays, I suppose. Uh, your first classes are always in grand lecture halls with a couple of hundred of your closest friends with a with a lecturer or the Professor, maybe professor, down in the front, uh, teaching. You can almost see him. Everybody's elbow to elbow with their laptops open. And if you want to have one-on-one sort of tutoring or instruction, uh, it's not likely to be the professor. It's likely that you're going to get a TA who is in a grad program who's looking to pick up a few extra bucks. And so the idea of ever actually sitting down face-to-face with the person who is leading the lecture Is fairly remote. Maybe you get that later in your course of study. But imagine what it must have been like for Solomon. All the best and the brightest minds on the planet coming to him, living in his estate if he wanted them to, sitting with him privately in his living room or his study, giving him one-on-one teaching and tutelage and maybe being there for weeks or months as he just sat under their instruction. Now Think of your favorite professors or the people that you'd like to gather and invite to your house to live with you if you had like two years off or three years off. And they could just sit and teach you about all the things that the world has to offer. What an amazing opportunity that would be. Think about the world of secrets that must have been opened up to the king in these sittings. Imagine the moments of of epiphany, those great moments of transformational aha experiences when his mind is blown and he starts to understand the world in whole new ways. And he wrestles through concepts and he works his way through the knowledge that's being presented to him. As Bethany prepared to make her way to school, uh, she's going to my alma mater as well. So I was finding myself feeling rather nostalgic for all the experiences that I had there too, and I started to remember particular professors, certain lectures, uh, particular books that I read throughout my four years there that were very meaningful to me. And so I took her out to breakfast one morning, and then brought her back to my library, and we made my way, made our way through my the stacks uh, of books, and at one at a time, I pulled out a book that was very meaningful to my growth and formation of understanding back in those years. And one by one, I told, told her what they meant to me, and I gave her about six or eight books that she's taken to school. And each one of them represents, uh, represents some of them were, were friends of mine, you know, friends who were affirming what I believed to be true about the world. Other books or authors were contenders that I had to wrestle with. Uh, sometimes push back against, sometimes try to figure out how what they are providing fits into my own understanding of the world. And each one of those books and authors represents uh, people who sit around uh, the table in the council of my mind that still inform me and speak to me as I make my way through life and learning, even now, learning about the world and learning about myself. And I imagine great moments of discovery for the teacher during his time of learning, too, Maybe you've had those experiences. Maybe you love to launch into learning with a ravenous appetite. But the teacher has has a different agenda to his learning. Remember, the teacher isn't off on an academic quest that would prepare him for for his career. He he wasn't off on a, a curious desire to learn more about the world that he lives in. Ultimately, The teacher is in the midst of this existential crisis where he's on a frantic search for life's meaning and he's uncovering every stone imaginable. He's climbing every ladder he can to see what's at the top. And so ultimately he's wondering, does my life matter for anything? And can my pursuit of knowledge and wisdom lead me to ultimate answers? Now finally, after an exhaustive course of study, he makes an observation. Here's what he says. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now imagine this, undergrad, grad work, doctoral work, and he comes away from it all saying, meaningless, it's all a burden to me. Now, of course, we've been with uh, the author for you know five weeks now, so it's not surprising to any of us that this was going to be the outcome. I was talking to someone this week, and they said, "Are we still in Ecclesiastes? Because I'm tired of getting bummed out. You know, I need a little uplift for my spirit." And I said, "One more week, and there is uplift at the end. I trust uh, trust me." Um, but of course, the truth there is truth in what he's saying. The fact that that wisdom and learning is a heavy burden is true. The fact that study is a burden is true. First of all, we know that's true because we know that learning can be tough. It can just be hard work, right? I mean, what student doesn't know the heavy burden of those who are on a quest for knowledge? What student doesn't know how hard it can be to study? Uh, It's time-consuming, to find ourselves sometimes feeling a slave to the books that we've been asked to read, sometimes a slave to the problems that we're working out mathematically. Uh, We find ourselves late at night, sometimes early in the morning, sometimes all day, holed up by ourselves, either in a library or at some desk or somewhere, while we are certain all the world around us is playing, and we're alone studying. You know what I mean. So it can be hard work. It can be mind-numbing when books bring us to consider ideas that are new to us, when when we're trying to wrestle with mathematical thoughts that that aren't just tangible but now theoretical, when we start to have our worldview challenged by something, some idea out there that doesn't fit and we have to come to resolution with it. It can be really hard when we're bombarded with new thinking. And so maybe that's part of the burden that he experienced. One of my life verses when I was at school was actually a verse out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I had it on a little three-by-five card, and I hung it above my desk in my dorm room. And the verse said this, Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Yeah. Well, studying is hard. And how many of you have, have ever had this feeling here? Uh, This is an old far side, you can't see the caption, but uh, this boy is raising his hand and he says, "Uh, Mr. Osborne, can I be excused? My brain is full, you know? (laughs) So we get to the point where we're just exhausted from the learning that we're doing. Um, So that's the first reason learning can be a burden. The second is that learning opens our eyes to the world's deepest problems. When we learn about the world, we discover things that are challenging Verse 15, the author says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be measured or counted. So what the teacher is basically saying, he says, now that I've opened my eyes and looked around the world, now that you have shared with me what goes on beyond what I can see in this world, I see intractable problems. I I see places in this world and people in this world that are crooked and broken and don't seem to be able to be fixed. I see crime, and I see movements of people, revolution and change. I see sickness and famine. I see all of the desperate nature of this world as broken as it is, and there's nothing I can do to solve those massive intractable intractable problems. He goes on to say what is lacking cannot be counted. That refers to the fact that we, have res- we are resource short and there are people who are longing for food and water and employment and meaningful work and love and all of it. But, but what they're lacking is so great we can't even count it. You know, we feel that way right now about Houston, the overwhelming floods. Do we have the resources? Who does to solve the problems that they're facing? Of course, we're throwing ourselves into that and seeking to make a difference. But we know the reality. We live in this information age, right? Where knowledge comes to us, information comes to us. We don't even have to leave our house and we see the world and its intractable problems right before us, 24-7 on the screen, right at our fingertips, at our computer. So it's easy to come to know things, but it's difficult to know what to do with that knowledge. The more we learn of the problems, the more we realize solutions are hard to come by. Verse 18, he says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And so the pursuit of knowledge opens our eyes to the massive problems in this world. Thirdly, and most critically, I think, for our angst-ridden author, teacher, is that a pursuit of knowledge can remind you how small you are. The pursuit of knowledge can be a reminder of how small you are in this universe. You know that old saying, the more you learn, the less you know. That's just the the reality. The more knowledge you accumulate, the more vast your understanding is of the vastness of the universe and all of its complexity, the more of a speck you feel like on a small circle planet hurling through the universe. The more history you study, Uh, The the longer the timeline, the more you realize that you live in a very short window uh, throughout the history of the world. The more insignificant your place in it. The more questions you ask, the more you trip over new questions. And then in the midst of it, if you feel your heart stirred to create, to add to the knowledge that is there, to become a prolific author or or an artist, or or to be a a prolific uh, academic and to give your voice to the, to, the, to the vast array of what's already been written, then you find yourself feeling very limited by the amount of time you have left, the number of years of your days. And people can feel in that moment very overwhelmed by the finitude, by the shortness of life. The writer says God has placed eternity into our hearts. But that eternity, if we don't know what to do with it, that's placed in our hearts, can become like a taunting curse mocking us. Most great minds come to recognize their tremendous limits, their own capacity to understand. Voltaire, the, uh, the very towering, and prolific, enlightenment academic and writer, he confesses this. He says, the more I read, the more I, re- ac- the more I acquire, the more certain I am, that I know nothing. That's Voltaire. And of course then, Sir Isaac Newton, arguably the most influential scientist of all time, he says this, he says, I don't know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I only seem to be a boy playing on the seashore. And diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. This is Sir Isaac Newton. What hope do the rest of us have? I mean, those pebbles and that shell, that shell was like the law of gravity that he discovered. Like, that's his, that's his shell. And lo, the pebble is like uh, all, all the theorems that underlie our systems of the physical world, uh, physics. Like, if, if he can't feel big and towering, who can? Who can? How limited your life the more we learn about the universe, the more we learn about our own limitations. And I believe it is this aspect of the weight and the burden of learning that weighed heavily and begins to pick at the sage's deepest anxiety about all of his searching. I think this is what gets to him. Because his greatest fear throughout the entire work, throughout the entire book, is that he will die and nothing will come of his existence. He is so afraid that his life will be lived and wasted and not make a difference. He fears that life is short, that we're like, what, a puff of smoke, like dust in the wind. And here he is discovering that pleasure is just fleeting and his ability to control is very limited and doesn't matter in the end and that his ambition is futile and that now his search for knowledge will ultimately lead him nowhere. And now get this. As if it's not a downer enough, he's about to take a turn. As if to put a fine point on all of it. At the very end of the book, all the way in chapter 12, he offers this beautifully written and masterfully imagined vision of what is in store for every human being who lives old enough to experience it. It's this haunting picture of a man at the end of his life. It's it's found in Ecclesiastes 12 verses 1 through 7 and it is as grim and anxiety producing a picture that you can imagine of the aging process of life. Are you ready? (laughs) Here we go. I want you to see it because I want you to viscerally experience what it is that is at the heart of this author's anxiety. He said, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. And here he's referring, the light is a reference to mental vitality. And he says, you and I have creativity and we have memory and we have wit and we have uh, have sharp minds. And the teacher says, as the aging process goes, the brightness of that light will begin to dim. Our memories will begin to fade. Our our wit will begin to, to slow down. Our, our ability to, to be quick with an answer and a response will go away. And all of a sudden, we'll find ourselves not being able, able to find our keys. Where did we put them? Uh, we need beepers on them so that we can find them with an app. And we start taking this, this herbal supplement to increase our, our memory, but we can't even remember what it's called or where we put it last. And all of this, the light will start to dim. And he says, when the keepers of the house tremble, the keepers of the house are the hands and the arms that take care of things around the rooms. And as old age comes, they begin to tremble and shake, and the fingers are not quite as agile as they used to be. It's hard to button, and it's hard to buckle, and all the things uh, that, that fall away. And the strong men stoop. It's referring to our legs. The strong men begin to get weakened. And our back, the strong man begins to bend and bow. When the grinders cease because they are few. That's in the Bible. Can I just say that? When the grinders cease, we know what he's talking about here. He's talking about our, our teeth when they begin to fall out. Now dental health has come a long way since then and we can hang on to most of them longer than we used to be able to. And those looking through the windows... Grow dim. It's a reference to a fading eyesight, cataracts, loss of vision. How many of you have those magnifiers lying all over your house? You know, you buy them by the score. When the doors of the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. This is when the doors of the street are actually your lips. The street is your teeth. When the door gets closed because there's no more teeth in your mouth, your mouth gets pursed and the grinding ceases. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in their streets. And this is the fear that a company is getting very old while the rest of the world seems to get younger and younger and faster and faster and you're moving slower while everybody seems to quicken their pace. And you're afraid to drive on the highway and you're afraid to walk in large crowds and so you start to keep it home more often. And then this, when the almond tree blossoms. Guess what color the almond blossoms are? White. When your hair turns white, and it eventually falls away. You know, the reality for all of us someday. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of people take longer to go white than they used to. (laughs) What is going on? We'll leave it at that. Uh, And the grasshopper drags itself along. And the grasshopper drags itself along. What an image. And desire is no longer stirred, speaking of a sexual vitality that's been lost. Interesting that Solomon saves this one till the end, right? Then people go to their eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Well, I wonder if there's any panic attacks happening in the in the uh, room this this morning. I have to tell you, I've spent some time with that poem these last couple of weeks with that writing, and just imagining myself in that spot. It's only a few short years in light of a long time. And, uh, and I felt the hair stand up on the back of my head. And I realized the simple truth is that God has placed eternity in my heart. I don't know about yours. This longing, this yearning for a life that goes beyond the short years of this, the span of this lifetime on earth. Ecclesiastes 3 says that he has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. You see, if we're looking for eternal meaning, which is what I think the author is actually looking for, meaning that lasts beyond this under the sun experience, if we are looking for eternal meaning from temporary things like pleasure and power and control and ambition and learning, if we are looking for eternal meaning from temporary things, we will find ourselves extremely dissatisfied in life. Whether it's any of the things that we've mentioned, if these things are pursued by lives lived under the sun in the short years of our day, then they will fade as quickly as they sprouted up. The truth is, eternal meaning is derived from things that are eternal. Eternal meaning is derived from things that are eternal. C.S. Lewis once said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, a world beyond the sun. So what is the conclusion of all of this? Where does the teacher find himself at the very end? After he's made his way up and down several ladders, finally the teacher makes this shift from offering observations that he sees about the vanity of his discoveries. He shifts from making observations to providing wisdom once and for all. Wisdom for how to live in light of his discovery. It's like a student who spent years and years of study. And he now comes to his grand thesis, to his final exam, uh, to offer his final dissertation. And he stands before the committee and he makes a proclamation. We'll hear it in a moment. But to be clear, to this point, his writing has been deeply existential, painfully pessimistic, as we've seen in these last several weeks. But the reason he writes with such angst, is so that we can feel the despair that rises up in him, rising up in us as well. He wants us to feel that feeling of despair for life under the sun. And he wants us to feel that. And then at the end, he surprises us with true wisdom. And the offer is like a breath of fresh air. It's wisdom he offers that shines through the darkness uh, of a room whose curtains had been drawn tightly shut, but the curtains have a little gap, and the sun, the shaft of sun, begins to shine brightly into the room through the curtains. And here's what he says. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. You see, finally, after all these chapters, the the, the the author, the teacher gives us a glimpse into ultimate meaning. Fear God and keep his commandments. Finally, we're talking about someone who is existent beyond this life, a reality that is experienced, an eternal reality that is experienced above the sun. And the irony of this command to fear the Lord is that the fear of the Lord is actually the one thing that casts out all other fears, that alleviates the anxiety, that brings meaning into life. Because fearing God isn't simply being afraid of God. Fearing God is letting God lead, letting him be the one who guides your life, your aspirations, your energy. Letting Him be the one who takes over and comes alongside and teaches you how to really live in this life. Not in a way that leads to meaninglessness, but in a way that leads to true purpose. You see, God is not this demanding ogre, He's the one who's standing at the door of eternity. He's inviting you in. And that eternal life doesn't start when we die. It begins when we offer him our lives, even now. And So eternity begins when we invite him to be the Lord. Fear God is the beginning of wisdom and not the end. Fear God in what? Keep his commandments. And what is that about, keeping the commandments? It's not about a heavy list of rules that God has given us to be burdened by. It is a liberation to live life the way life is intended to live. The greatest commandments are these, remember. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God, the one who created you for eternity, the one who is eternal. And love your neighbor as yourself. Take even the resources of your learning and put them to use, not just to fill your mind and to give you something to boast about, but to look around the world and help meet the needs of those in the problem areas and places that you see. To give yourself to others, love God, true relationship with him, and true love for others. And can I say, even if at the end it isn't all true, I believe living like that brings great meaning and purpose. But you know me well enough to know I absolutely know it to be true. That God has given us eternities, placed it in our hearts, and He wants us to begin to live it now. Not vanity, vanity, but grand purpose, grand purpose in all of it. Ultimate meaning and purpose and joy meets us in knowing Him and loving others. And what happens? Our anxieties and fears are dispelled. It doesn't mean that life is perfect and smooth and easy and that death isn't hard at the end, but it means we no longer need fear death. What the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't know that we do is that God has come down from eternity into this present experience in the person of Jesus to once and for all offer on, uh, on behalf of us himself to make straight what has been made crooked to forgive us of our sin and brokenness and to invite us into life with God. And so we have an opportunity to experience eternity with him. So what are the practical takeaways at the beginning of a new year for all of us, at the beginning of a school year and a new ministry year that starts next year? First of all, I would say, if you are a person who is feeling the tug of these existential questions And they've risen up in you this morning and over the course of these weeks. And you've never entered into a life with God through the person of Jesus. You can do that today. And you can start living the eternal life at this moment by asking Christ to be the one who forgives you, the one who frees you, the one who leads you from this point forward. That's available to you. Maybe you're here and you've had those questions and you still have a lot more questions. We have a great course that's starting in a couple of weeks. It's called the Alpha Course. It's a, it's a place where you can bring all your angst, all your uh, existential questions, all your frustrations about organized religion and Christianity and all of that, and just come and air those things out and listen as, uh, as we do have a presentation of, uh, of the Christian faith there as well. So we have great conversation. I'd encourage you to join us there if you have deeper questions and in search of deeper answers. If you're a follower of God, you've come uh, through faith in Christ into a relationship with him. Then my encouragement is continue to gather with us on Sunday morning. Continue to find yourself in community with others. Because what happens when we get together is, is when we see each other putting our ladder against the wrong wall, we can tap and say, hey, come on. You're walking up the wrong rungs." Let's make sure that God is at the heart of our searching. And, and what happens when he is at the center is then we can make our way through work in a meaningful way, through our ambition in a meaningful way, through our pursuit of pleasure and joy, and all of that gets put into its proper place. But sometimes we need the sharpening of one another. So come to worship regularly. Join a group that will be starting in uh, the next few weeks. I encourage you to do that. And then finally, let's all of us together commit ourselves to leaning into the next generation. Because the fact is, we have a great responsibility to help our kids remember their creator in the days when they are young, in the days of their youth. And and some of us have stories of of marching up a ladder and finding ourselves very disillusioned and maybe even crushed at the top. And we can help share that with someone who's walking up the same path. Maybe you can share the joy of what it looks like to have a relationship with God with some younger person. Maybe you can serve in Kidstown or in student ministry. I just encourage you to be be one who passes things down from generation to generation so the people don't have to go through an empty search and find their lives at a wreck at some point in life, but they can walk faithfully through every turn of the season. We can breathe eternal meaning into each other and those around us. I want to close with this statement. And it's simply the culmination of all that we've heard from the teacher in Ecclesiastes. The statement is simply this. Never forget that eternal meaning comes from a life-giving relationship with the God of eternity. Eternal meaning comes from the life-giving relationship with the God of eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to this moment thanking you that you have set before us teachers and guides who can walk us through moments of wisdom and insight, who can lead us uh, down paths before us, helping us not to think that we need to go there too. God, I thank you that in the midst of our striving, in the midst of our yearning, in the midst of our Searching for significance and meaning, we find a God who stands ready to receive, open-armed, wanting and longing for those he's created to come back home and to start experiencing the joy of life as it is meant to be experienced. God, help us as a church. Remind us always that we are not a building. We are a community. Remind us that we are a people committed to you, committed to loving each other, committed to making a difference in this world. God, as we come to this table, we are reminded that you have shown us what it looks like through your, the, the person of your son, Jesus, who has stepped out of eternity and into this temporal experience to experience all that we've experienced as human beings and yet to come to the end sinless, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sake that we might know you through him. So God, may these elements in these moments remind us of the amazing gift of your son, your love, in Christ's name, amen.